0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. The word of the Lord declares Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules. That the Lord, your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you were going to possess it, that you may fear the Lord, your God, and you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandment, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. As the Lord, your God, your fathers, uh, the, the, the God of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. John Piper, pastor and teacher and the president of the Gospel Coalition, once wrote, One day America and all its presidents will be a footnote in history, but the kingdom of Jesus will never end. Those words are very poignant, so I would they bear repeating. He said, One day America and all its presidents will be a footnote in history, but the kingdom of Jesus will never end. And my friends, that is the simple truth. One day our beloved country, for all of its greatness and for all of its splendor and all of its power and for all the accomplishments and for all the prosperity that we have brought to humanity and for the freedom that has brought to the people of the world, our beloved America one day will be no more than a footnote in the book of human history. Now you are, I know you probably don't ex- wouldn't expect me to open up with that on a message for patriotic Sunday, just before July 4th, but it is the truth. It's a truth that we must come to terms with. It's a truth that we need to be clear about and embrace. It's a hard truth, but it is the truth nonetheless. Because no nation in the entire world has ever outlived its own greatness. Not the Mesopotamians. Not the great Egyptian dynasties. Not the Babylonians. Not Persia. Not the Greeks. Not the Romans. Nor the Gauls or the Franks nor the Moors, for that matter. Not France, not Spain, not even England. Ever the nation that has ever risen to the status of the most powerful nation in the world eventually slipped off its pedestal to be replaced by another. That is just the way of history. That's just the way of the world. Because there has never been a nation, there has never been a power on the earth that is not temporal. There's never been a nation that is eternal. Every great nation ends up as a footnote in history. Even God's chosen nation, the nation of Israel itself. The nation was personally created by God himself. A nation that was visibly rescued by God from another nation, the Egyptians. A nation that, was, that God had given their, his divine favor to. A nation that experienced the very presence of God A nation that was entrusted with the very oracles and the word of God. A nation that was led by men like Moses and Joshua, Samuel, David, and even Solomon. A nation that bore for us the Savior himself. Yet for all of that, and for all the blessings that God had bestowed upon Israel, the nation of Israel all but vanished from the face of the earth. It ceased to exist for nearly 1,900 years, and it wasn't until 1948 that the nation of Israel was recreated, and even then, she's still a long ways away from being the world's greatest superpower. She is far and away from having her glory of former days to be restored. Now, why do I mention this on the July, on the weekend of the July 4th? I mean, you might be thinking, well, all right, Sherman, that's kind of depressing, (laughs) I thought July 4th was supposed to be a celebration, right? We're supposed to celebrate and rejoice our country's freedom. Why, why are you talking about this? Well, you're right. It is a time of celebration and we should do that. It's a time to rejoice in the freedoms that we have been given. It's time to be grateful to God for our country. But I also think the patriotic Sunday and the 4th of July should be a time of deep reflection. Should be a time of thinking about the cost that was paid by those to set us free. It's time to reflect on those who willingly paid the price to give us the freedom that we have. And it's also time to take stock and to look around and to see how things really are around us. Are we really living in America the way that it was meant to be? Are we living in a way that honors the sacrifice of those who died to secure the nation and the freedoms that we have? Or has it become something else? Is our nation growing stronger or is it growing weaker? Are we as citizens living in a way that's deserving of the freedom that God has blessed us with? Or are we squanderers who take what we have been given for granted, not knowing what we actually have been blessed with? These are the questions that we should ask at least once in a while. These are the things that we should reflect on. So as we approach the anniversary Of the birth of our nation, I think it'd be good and appropriate to to thank God and to worship God for the freedom that we have and to celebrate that. But I also think it's equally important to reflect on the eventuality of the reality that our country one day will face. Which will become a footnote in history like every other nation before us. And then to ask the all-important question, are we? Are we the generation that will bear witness to the sun setting on our great country? Are we the last generation of the greatest nation of the world that the world has ever seen to this point? Are we truly the last ones to know what it means to be an American? Are we truly the ones, the last ones to know about the price of the blood that, was, that, that, that purchased our freedom? I think that these are things that, that bear reflecting on. And there are two things that we need to stop and think about long and hard today. Number one, the country that we have and the freedom that we enjoy All those things are, in fact, a precious, fragile gift that God has given to us. And that gift can be lost. It's a gift from God, right? The country we have and the freedom we have is from the hand of God himself. But it can be squandered and it can be lost. And I think that we might be closer to losing it than some dare to imagine. Number two, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to be the last generation. We don't have to be the generation that watches our country descend into the twilight of history. There is, in fact, a way to stem the tide. There is a way to preserve the country and the freedoms that we have for at least one more generation. There is a way to prolong our nation's legacy so that the new generation that comes behind us can know and enjoy what it truly means to be free. That, by the way, is the point of the message that we'll get to where I want to begin today is I want to talk about where we come from. You see, we live right now in a world that, that believes there are people that want to rewrite history. They, they're rewriting it all the time. Right? And they will say the United States of America was not founded as a Christian nation. That it was not founded on Christian principles and ideals. They will say that America was never, not one time in history, been a Christian nation. That it was simply a myth made up by Christians in the modern era. And many of these people will say that, that, that our national faith has nothing to do with the success and the prosperity that God has has given to our country that we've enjoyed for the last 200 years. But is that really the truth? Is it how the things really are? John Adams, the second president of the United States, once wrote, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I avow that... I then believed and now believe that those principles of Christianity are as eternal and as immutable as the existence and the attributes of God. His son, John Quincy Adams, who was also the sixth president of the United States, said, "It is the claim. It is in the chain of human events. The birthday of the nation is in. Indiz- indul- That's a word that I can't pronounce. All right. In the chain of human events." The birthday of our nation is indelibly linked with the birthday of the Savior. The Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the precepts of Christianity. Benjamin Franklin, who was not a Christian but a deist, wrote, As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion as he left them to us the best the world ever saw and is likely to ever see. John Hancock, sensible of the importance of Christian piety and virtue to the order and happiness of the state, I cannot but earnestly commend to you every measure for their support and encouragement. Patrick Henry, the great pillar of all government and social life, our virtue, morality, and religion, this is the armor, my friend. And this alone that renders us invincible. Chief Justice John Jay. I recommend a general and public return of praise and thanksgiving to, to him from whose goodness these blessings descend. The most effectual means for secu- of securing the continuance of our civil and religious liberties. Is always to remember with reverence and gratitude the source from which they flow. Thomas Jefferson who has many would say, is not a Christian, says the practice of morality being necessary for the well-being of society. He, God, has taken care to impress its precepts so indelibly on our hearts that they shall not be effaced by subtleties of our brain. We all agree in the obligation of the moral principles of Jesus and nowhere will they be found delivered in greater purity than his own discourses. George Washington, the first president of the United States, wrote, You will do well to wish and to learn our arts and our ways of life and above all the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are. He also said, While you were zealous performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion, to the distinguished character of patriot. It should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. Roger Sherman, who was the U.S. Senate, was a U.S. senator and the framer of the Constitution and a framer of the Bill of Rights, expressing his statement of faith, said, "I believe that there is only one living and true God, existing in three persons—the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the same in substance, equal in power and glory—that the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are a revelation from God and a complete rule." To direct us in how we may glorify and enjoy him. That he made man at first perfectly holy. That the first man sinned and he was the public head of, of his posterity. They all became sinners in consequence of, the, of his first transgression. Are wholly indisposed to that which is good and inclined to evil. And on the account of sin are liable to all the miseries of this life, death, death. And the pains of hell forever. I believe that God did send, did send his own son to become a man. Die in, in the room instead of sinners. And thus lay the foundation for the offer of pardon and salvation to all mankind. So that we may be saved who are willing to accept the gospel offer. I believe a visible church to be a congregation of those who are made up who make a credible profession of their faith in Christ and obedience to him. Joined by the bond of the covenant, I believe that the sacraments of the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. I believe that the soul of the believers are at death made perfectly holy and immediately taken to glory. And at the end of the world, there will be a resurrection of the dead and a final judgment of all mankind when the righteous shall be publicly acquitted by Christ the judge and admitted into everlasting life and glory, and the wicked to be sentenced to everlasting punishment. My friends, this is the tiniest of sampling of the mountain of quotations from hundreds and hundreds of men who were there. Men who were there when the Declaration of Independence was written, men who fought and watched many die to create this nation, men who forged the very documents that gave us, our country, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, men who built a new nation on the principles and the truths of the word of God and the Christian faith, we were indeed founded as a Christian nation. Now, not every single man there was a Christian, but the vast majority of them were. And those who weren't Christians conceded the importance of the Christian faith and the practical application of Christianity and its truths for our civil society. We were founded as a Christian nation, a nation of people who were free to pursue um, and to worship God as their consciences dictated. And the vast majority of Americans at that time did just that. They worshipped God, and God blessed our nation. Now, this will say, and others that would say differently are just simply willfully ignorant of the, the facts of history. Now, it is not to say that our country has been without flaw. Because the fact of the matter is, is our nation, like Christ's own church, is made up of fallible, flawed human beings. And those human beings make mistakes and at times commit egregious and horrendous sins, like the sin of slavery. Perhaps the darkest stain in all of human history, a sin so great that millions and millions of human beings were subject to the indecency and inhumanity of chattel slavery. A sin so grievous and so horrific that even millions of other people fought and died to rectify that sin. Over and over the people of our nation have engaged the injustices that have flourished in our country the injustice of racism, the injustice of sexism, the injustices of child labor. Over and over again, the people of this country who called upon the name of Jesus Christ would take up the righteous cause and they would change the world around them. And God continued to bless our country. And then in 1917, thousands of our young men rallied to the cause to preserve freedom in Europe. Out of the trenches, they would charge with bayonets fixed. Facing Barbed wire and withering machine gun fire and mustard gas. Thousands of miles from home, our boys died for the freedom of other people. And then in 1941, the United States committed its industry, its money, and its young men to fight tyranny on a worldwide scale from the continent of Europe to the tiniest island in the Pacific, from paratrooper landings to amphibious, from paratrooper drops to amphibious landings, our country was willing to pay the price in blood to secure the freedom of other people around the world. And we remained at that time a Christian nation. The leader of the Allied forces, Dwight D. Eisenhower, a man of deep faith, once said, without God there can't could be no American form of government nor any American way of life. Recognition of the supreme being is the first and most basic expression of Americanism. Thus the founding fathers saw it and thus God's, with God's help we will continue to be. Those who fought and won that class, cataclysmic war in Europe and Pacific have been labeled the greatest generation. A culmination of all that was good about our country. America was founded and has been a Christian nation and God has blessed our country as a result. But it was Theodore Roosevelt early in the 20th century who offered what seems to be prophetic words when he said, I believe that the next half century will determine if we will advance the cause of Christian civilization or revert to the horrors of brutal paganism. It's interesting because in less than a generation, the tide began to turn on our Christian nation as the memories of victories over tyranny and genocide began to give way to the popularity of the sexual revolution and the drug culture. The concept of freedom went from being able to being free to speak your mind and to worship as you see fit and to live your life and to raise your family as God guides you to do so. To being free to be sexually promiscuous with whoever you want to and to live a life free of accountability and the consequences that follow your actions. In America, we once fought the chains of tyranny and the chains of slavery. But in the 60s and 70s, a culture war began uh, in an effort to throw off the restraints and the bonds of faith and religion. And less than 20 years after the Allied forces... Freed Europe from the atheistic-inspired atrocities of Nazi Germany, the Supreme Court of the United States banned school faculty and officials from organizing and leading prayer and the reading of Scripture in public schools, all but removing God from public education. In less than 30 years after the Allied forces put an end to the extermination of the unwanted Jews in Germany and Eastern Europe, the United States Supreme Court effectively legalized the extermination of unwanted children. And 59 million children have been sacrificed since then. All within most of our lifetime. In fact... An additional 543,000 children have been killed since January 1 of this year alone. And then we went through the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Those, and those who refused to acknowledge God and those who wished to throw off the moral restraints of those religious people began to rapidly gain momentum in the arts and the media and the cinema. Separation of church and state became the misused Jeffersonian quote to justify the the removing of references of God in the public sector. Schools and courthouses and public parks and national monuments were stripped of all references to the God of the Bible. And while deviant sexual behavior became endorsed and celebrated by art and cinema and television and even the educational system. And then, 1992, in his ruling on abortion conservative conservative supreme court justice kennedy wrote what has now come to be known as his notorious mysterious passage and in this passage a supreme court judge redefined for our world what reality is Not a philosopher who studies metaphysics, not a theologian, not a scientist, not God himself. A Supreme Court justice redefined the nature of reality. And let me just read for you his words. He wrote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Let me read that again. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Or in other words, at the heart of liberty is the right of everyone to define what reality is as you see fit according to your own thoughts and desires. This is the culmination and the conclusion of postmodernism. This is the removal of absolute objective truth. Reality has now become what you decide for it to be. Now with Kennedy's words, I'd just like to remind you of something and read for you the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 5, verse 20. He wrote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who would subvert reality. Since the 1990s, America has slowly become a secular nation. As a number of, of people who professed biblical faith in Jesus Christ has slipped from an outward professing majority to now for the first time in all of American history, the minority. And as a result, Christians once respected for their charity and their morality and their citizenship are now looked down as naive and backwards and downright stupid. Those who sincerely choose to follow Christ and obey what he says in his word are lampooned and mocked and called bigots and monsters. They're labeled homophobes and Islamophobes and sexists and anti-intellectuals. And those who follow Christ are labeled as crazy and insane and out of touch with reality while the culture encourages people to believe that gender and even species are just social constructs, constructs and have no basis in reality itself. The entertainer Miley Cyrus proclaimed that she has no gender or no species she's not even an individual as as we would understand it in fact she said i'm weird for many reasons i feel genderless i feel ageless she said i'm just a spirit soul not divided by not a not divided by human being even animals it's no there's no me or them there's no us and you i just want to be nothing and the world celebrates this as honest and authentic and real christians are looking are looked at as prehistoric backwards people because they encourage young boys to grow up to be real men who work hard and who sacrifice to take care of their families and their country. The world outside wants to feminize young men and make them apologize for just simply being born male. While women are encouraged to be aggressive and to be the bullies that feminists despise in men. We live at a time... When right is wrong and wrong is right. A time where criminals who rape and steal and kill are held as heroes and commended as the true victims. While those who sacrifice to uphold the law are labeled as murderers and Nazis. And a growing part of our population are calling for the wholesale killing of law enforcement officials. As people march on streets celebrating the lives of people who actually really commit horrific evils. We live in a time where people freely and publicly act out the most vile drama, such as the supposed abortion performed on Virgin Mary, on the Virgin Mary as, as, as they joyfully sacrifice the baby Jesus and people line up in streets naked in demonstrations against the government and people act out deviant behaviors at pride marches. But when you say that you believe that there 's only one way to God and that 's Jesus christ you 're immediately accused of hate speech and told that you don't have the right to speak those kinds of opinions. We once lived at a time where people were entitled to their opinions and entitled to speak those opinions no matter how stupid or awful or vile or insensitive they were because free speech meant it was free for all people. But now we live in a world where of safe spaces and trigger warnings and, and college students and faculty who are openly asking for the abolition of the first amendment. Of the right to free expression of ideas. Especially ones that don't line up with where our culture is headed. We well, there have been a time in rampant incivility. Demonstrators who claim the cause of love and tolerance and, and peace violently assault those who differ in their opinions. People who claim peace are ironically uh, burning buildings and cars and property. And all this is encouraged and fueled not by fringe crackpots are encouraged and celebrated by the mainstream press and musicians and cinema and, and, and cinema, uh, cinematic arts who remembers who can re- even remember a time think with me who can even remember a time when mainstream artists would openly call for the assassination of a sitting president that has never happened before that has never happened before there have always been the crazies out there But now dozens of household names have called for the murder of our current president, not to mention the open-air theater drama that reworked the story of Julius Caesar to include the assassination of our current president. Now, I don't care who you voted for. I don't care if you voted at all. This is scary stuff. We live in a country now that has lost its moral, its intellectual, its philosophical, and its civil moorings. We are in a drift of post-modern secularism. In a sea of secularism. And there is no reference point by which to navigate by. To find our way home. Or the one that we would offer is rejected. And it's just the beginning. Because understand that we live at a time where the neighbors to the north of us in Ontario, Canada run the risk of of having their children stripped from them by the government if they teach what the Bible teaches about marriage and gender. Especially if one of their children might have questions about that and aren't sure about that. The government will step in and take their children because the government knows best. But that's not even the most startling of developments. In England, a country that was the most powerful nation in the world at one point a country that we're closely identified with a country that was once christian like us in england a country that 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 is held up as the beacon of hope of tolerance in europe exists the greatest kind of tragedy and the greatest violation of human rights The greatest human rights violation is being committed as we speak. And this violation is not being committed at the hands of Islamic extremists. It is being committed by the European High Court. A court of law, a court of justice, a court like our own. Let me just tell you the story. You have probably never heard of Charlie Gard or his parents. Charlie is a terminally ill 10-month-old who has been sentenced to death by the European Court of Human Rights. The European Court of Human Rights. Just let that just kind of hang there for a second. He's been sentenced to death by the European Court of Human Rights. And this court, which determined that while his parents wanted to take him to the United States for a long-shot, life-saving treatment, they were told, no, they cannot do it. They had no right to do it and said the court ruled that the great Ormond Street Hospital for Children would withdraw all life support from this baby, killing the child. Now, what is the court's justification for this? Charlie, the court decided, had to die with dignity. That's their rationale. Charlie suffers from a mitochondrial disease that destroys muscles in the brain. There was no available treatment in the United Kingdom, and so Charlie's parents... Chris Gard and Connie Yates, on their own, without the help of the government, raised $1.6 million to fly him to the United States for an experimental treatment that might have saved his life. But the hospital argued that this treatment wouldn't help Charlie, but would prolong his suffering. Because they knew better than the parents, who actually had been with the child and suffered with the child's illness and cared for him every single day of his little life. Thus, the hospital argued that it would be in Charlie's best interest for him to die. To add insult to injury, the Vatican, once a staunch defender of life and parental rights, has agreed with the court's decision. The Vatican, uh, the Vatican's pontifical academy for life agreed that it was in charlie's best interest to die and it agreed with the high court that 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 the, the court had the right to make that determination regardless of what the parents thought or had to say the academy said in effect that we have to help the parents to understand that this is simply the way it is and they just need to come to terms with it is in essence what they said the implications of this case are absolutely mind-blowing and staggering beyond all imagination. The European government has moved now into the position of God to determine who should live and who should die. My friends, this is just the beginning because now the government is in the place to determine what is right and wrong, what is good and what is not. The court decided that Charlie's parents had no right to do whatever they felt necessary to save the life of their own child because the government knows better, because the hospital knew better. The government knows what is right for him and what is best for him to die with his dignity. This is another step toward the diminishing of parental rights around the world. Parents are increasingly looked upon by governments as secondary in the decision-making process for children. Children. And this is not some backwards country. This is England. The country we came from, a country based that we have a legal system based on theirs. A country that once was a world superpower like we are today. Once a Christian nation, a nation that bowed its knee before the God of the Bible who has now become thoroughly secular like we are becoming. Hear me. The country that we have and the freedom that we enjoy is in fact a precious and fragile gift that God has given us and it can be lost. And we are very close to losing both. The more our nation turns us back on God, the closer we will become. And I said, though, there is hope. This isn't a doom and gloom message. There is hope. It doesn't have to be this way, at least not yet. We don't have to be the last generation of the greatest nation on earth. There is a way to stem the time. There is a way to preserve this country and those freedoms for at least one more generation. The Bible is filled full of stories of of the nation of Israel falling out out of favor with God and then experiencing revival and turning back to him, back to the Lord and being restored. In fact, God promised Solomon, even before Israel turned away from him the first time, he promised if my people who were actually, who were called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. God knew that they would turn away. God knew that they would fall their own wicked hearts. God, and he promised that if they did, that he would judge them But he also promised that they repented and they turned back, that he would restore them and he would heal their land. Now I realize that that this promise is for the nation of Israel and we are not the nation of Israel. But I believe with all my heart with the scriptures that say, if you will move towards God, God will move toward you. That if you will confess your sins, that he is faithful to cleanse you. That if you wholly commit yourself into his hand, he will lift you up. I believe with all my heart that if our church and our community and our country were to turn our hearts back to God, that he would restore us. I believe that if we repented as a nation and sought revival with all of our hearts as a country, that God would bring that revival. And I believe that the best days of our human American history would still be before us and not behind. I believe that with all my heart. Now, I still believe what John Piper said that one day that our country would be a footnote in human history. Of this I have no doubt. Right? I believe that one day this, that we will be replaced. I absolutely believe with all my heart that the kingdom of Christ will continue on forever. But I don't believe that, that our beloved country needs to go quietly marching off into the twilight just yet. Because I believe that there's incredible things that God can still do with our country I believe that God can use our nation to bring hope to the hopeless and to bring love to the unloved. I believe that Christians in our country can be used by God to save millions and millions of more souls. I believe that the United States of America can still be looked upon as a beacon of hope and freedom for those who are oppressed and those who are persecuted around the world. And I believe that our country can experience the greatest revival the world has ever witnessed if we would just humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, if we would we would wholesale turn our hearts to Jesus, if we completely surrender into his hand, I believe it would all change. Now you might say, that sounds good. But how? How do we do that? How do we seek God's face so we can bring revival back to our country? Well, actually, Moses gives us insight into that in the book of Deuteronomy um, as he wrote a prescription for the nation of Israel to live out a way that God would bless them in their nation. And I think there's something in here that we can learn from that. In fact, chapter 6, Moses wrote, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you were going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord, you your son and your son's sons, by keeping all the statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and all the days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may, that you may, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised in the land of flowing with milk and honey. Now, I understand... that that Moses was talking to the nation of Israel and he was exhorting them to keep the Mosaic law. He was telling them that if they would obey the law, then God would, that, that it would go well for them and that God would prosper them and he would multiply them because the nation of Israel was a theocracy. It was a nation that was ruled directly by God's authority. And so I realized that we can't simply just take this text and go, see, that's about us because it's not about us it's about Moses and it's about the nation of Israel but even though it's not about us directly there are principles in this text that we can take and apply to our own lives there are truths in this text that we can still apply to the lives of our own families and our nation for instance in this text Moses promises essentially learning God's law and obeying God is good for us so if you'll do this, it'll go well for you. Well, we know for a fact that if we will do what God wants us to do, if we will obey God, if we do what God wills, it's what's in our best interest. Ultimately, it's best for us. Obedience produces what's best for us. Next, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now, this right here is called a Shema. Okay? It's something that the Israelites would recite every single day. They would memorize it and recite it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would recite this every single day to remind themselves about the truth of God and remind themselves of the text that follows. Because Moses says next, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And this right here is the starting point for us. Because this right here is, is, is what's called the greatest command. Jesus called it the greatest commandment. Matthew chapter 22 We read about a Jew who asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. All of the Old Testament can be summed up in these two commands. You see, we as Christians are not subject to the Mosaic law. But we are commanded by, by Jesus to love God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and a mind. We're to love God with everything we have. And we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. The foundation of true obedience is to love God. We are to love God with every fiber of our being. We're to love God with every, more than anything else. We're to love God more than we love our lives. We're to love Him supremely. That is the foundation of obedience to Him, is to love Him. If we as individuals, if we as a a community, if we as a country, if we have any hope for revival at all in our church, in our neighborhoods, in in our nation, this has to be the first commandment that we all obey, that we all need to love God with everything that we are. Now, I, I believe that most of you, if not all of you, love God. I believe that most of you love God deeply and dearly. I would like to just ask you one penetrating question. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you cherish God above everything else in your life? Do you desire God more than you desire anything else in the world? Do you love God more than your hobbies? Do you love God more than your money? Do you love God more than your work? Do you love God more than your friends? Do you love God more than your children? What about your grandchildren? Do you love God supremely above every other thing on this earth? If not, why not? If so, does it show? I was once told that you can tell a lot about a person when you walk into their house by the pictures that they have hanging in their home. People who love their family tend to have lots of pictures of their family and their kids on the walls. People who love their animals, the same. People who love their hobbies, it's the same. And the same can be said about Facebook. You can typically tell, you know, people who, who by, the, by the way they post pictures, what's important to them, right? I mean, you can certainly tell with a certain degree of accuracy what people tend to be self-focused and what people tend to be focused on other people like their family and their, their friends, I mean, there's, I mean, if you look at my Facebook, there's not going to be a mystery. When you look at the pictures, you're going to find out that fishing is important to me. Okay? You're just going to see lots of pictures of it. That's just the way it is. Well, just like pictures and just like Facebook, your life and how you live will tell the story of what's important to you. Does your life and the way that you live express to the world outside that you are deeply, madly in love with God? Does your life demonstrate that you love God so much that you love him with everything that you are and that you love him so much that you willingly obey that second command to love what he loves, which is other people? If we're going to have revival in our church, if we're going to have revival in our nation, it must begin with a fresh, heartfelt, overwhelming love for God. And it must begin with us loving God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, you might be thinking, how are we going to get everybody to start loving God that way so we can have revival? And the answer is really simple. You can't. You can't get everybody to love God that way. I can't get everybody to love God that way. All you can do, all I can do is to love God in my own life that way. All we can do is to love God with all we are individually and to love others as Jesus commanded and then allow God to be God and to use the love that we have to bring love and hope and light to others. You see, we always want to start outside. We always want to start with them. How can we fix them? How can we get them to change? How can we get them to stop doing what they're doing because they ain't doing it good? How can we get them to start doing what they should be doing because they ain't doing what they should be doing? We all want to start outside because it's easier. But the solution is not out there. The solution is in here. You want to change the world? You want to improve your community? You want to bring your nation back to God? It begins in here, in your own hearts, and in your own life. Are you in obedience to the first and greatest command? Do you love God with all your heart? Do you love God with all your soul? Do you love God with all your strength? Do you love God with all your mind? Is God the greatest love of your life? Is God the greatest joy of your heart? That's where we must begin. That's where you need to begin. That's where I need to begin. And then we need to obey the second commandment. Loving neighbors as ourselves. We need to love all others around us, not just politely. Hi, how you doing? But intimately, up close, personally. We need to love each other up close. We need to be there for each other. Like family. That's how we change the world. That's how we change our community. That's how we change our nation. And it's not a mystery because this is the way it's always been. Love God, love other people. That's what discipleship is. Love God, love people, teach others to do the same thing. Love God, love people, teach others to do the same thing. That is how we change the world. So revival doesn't begin out there, it begins in here. Now the next thing that Moses says is, and these words I command to you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. When you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall, and, they, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and your gates. Now in this remaining text, uh, there, there are two practical applications that I think we can apply right now. Number one, we need to keep the word of God in our heart. That's what he says. Keep the word of God on your heart. How are you going to love God if you don't know him? How are you going to know him if you don't know his word? How are you going to love God with all your heart if his word isn't in you? We need to keep the word of God in our hearts, which means that we need to be in the word, studying the word, reading the word, memorizing the word, the Word, me- meditating on the word, talking about the word. It needs to become a part of who we are. We need to become people of the book, people of the word of God. You want to change the course of your country? You want to change? You want to create revival in your community? It begins with the word of God. It begins with the word of God being planted deep within our hearts, allowing it to take root, and then allowing it to bear fruit in our lives. We must get the word of God deep in here. Now, I know that I sound like a broken record because I talk about it all the time. But I talk about it all the time because it's that important. It's the truth. We must get the word of God in us. And then after that, we need to teach the next generation. That's what he says. Teach your children diligently. This right here is the greatest of all of our human failings, by the way. Because we do not teach the next generation. Right? We don't make it a priority to teach the next generation. That's exactly what happened to Israel. And that's exactly what's happening to us. We don't teach the next generation. Think about how different this generation is compared to your generation. I mean, 20 years ago, think back with me. It doesn't seem like that long ago. 1997 seems like about 10 years, but it's 20 years, right? 20 years ago, would you have imagined a thing such as college safe spaces? Would you have imagined a young workforce that just completely refuses to work? Could you imagine... The number of teachers who are having illicit relationships with their students that you see every other day on the news. I keep thinking it's the same one and it's not. Would you imagine the amount of violence committed by so many young people that we see all over the internet? Violence against old people. Violence against the the mentally uh, uh, retarded. Violence just against people just randomly. Would you have imagined that it would be illegal um, that it would be illegal for someone to exercise their faith and to say something like, "Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I can't, in good conscience, bake that cake." Twenty years ago, would you have thought it was possible for thousands of young adults to march and protest for the end of the First Amendment? Right? We have failed to train the next generation. We have failed to teach the word of God diligently to our children. That is why our country stands perilously on the razor's edge. Now, before we get all high and mighty and point our fingers and talk about educational systems and the media and technology, we need to look at ourselves first. We need to look inwardly. See, you don't... And ask, we have to ask ourselves, what have I done? To teach the children in my house the word of God. What have you done to teach your children the word of God? Do you drag them into church? Do you make them go to youth group even though they don't want to? Do you make it a part of their daily life that they have to read the word of God? Do you read the word of God with them? Do you pray with them every day? Do you talk about life in the context of their faith? Do you talk about struggles Right? in their life and use them as ways to point them back to Jesus or is that just reserved for Sunday talk? Are you doing your part to teach your children the word of God? You see, the solution isn't to look outward again, it's to look inward. You make it your responsibility to teach the word of God. That's how you change the world. That's how we bring revival to our community. And dads, this falls squarely in your lap. You are the leader of your household. You are the spiritual leader of your family. This is absolutely your responsibility. It is up to you. This isn't a sexist statement, by the way. Did you know that if a mother goes to church with her children, that one out of 50 of those children will continue to worship God as they become adults? That's 2%. That's just the science. But if dads go to church with their children, two-thirds to three-quarters of those children will continue to worship God into adulthood. That's just reality. Now, just think, now that's just about church attendance. Think about the difference that you can make dads if you will teach your children the word of God. That you will take for yourself the job of teaching children the word of God and not try to make it mine. I mean, I'm here for you and I'll do it. Believe me you ask the kids in my youth group I proclaim the gospel all the time but I've got them for like an hour and a half a week you have them all the rest of the time they look up to me certainly but they look up to you much much more we need to teach our children the word of god that's how we change the world that's how we create revival that's how we stem the tide we love god with all of our hearts In our mind, soul, and strength, we love our neighbors as as ourselves. We get the word of God in our hearts. We teach the next generation to follow God. That's how we change our community. That's how we change the direction of our nation. That's how we write these last few chapters of our country's history. As we love God with a reckless abandon and follow him wherever he may lead us. And we love each other the way Christ loved us. And we get the word of God and we get it deep in our hearts and then we pass it along to the next generation and teach them to do the same thing. That is how we humble ourselves before God and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways so that God will hear us from heaven and forgive our sins and heal our land. I want to pray for you in our country, but I don't want you to close your eyes. I want you to look up here with me I want you to pray with me in your heart. Dear God, we're a nation broken, in desperate need of you, our only hope and our Savior. that's consumed by self and materialism and division and strife. A nation wandering in the darkness away from you. A nation wandering in the desert. Have we forgotten you, O Lord? our first and greatest love. Today we humbly come to you and we pray with all our hearts wide open. Hear us, O oh God. And heal our land. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.